This is the IBJ podcast for the week of February 13th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I always like it when a theme emerges for the podcast. It makes it look like I'm planning ahead. The theme that I've sussed out this week is how things get made. And as a preamble, let me tell you that we recently launched a new feature in the print version of IBJ called Made in Indiana. It's just what it sounds like. Every week, we're featuring a product that is made in the Hoosier State. A few of them are obvious institutions like Clabber Girl Baking Powder and Weaver Popcorn and the Subarus that roll off the line in Lafayette. But there are a lot of lesser known but equally impressive products and manufacturers on the list. My entry for this week's paper is about Howell and Hyde, an Indianapolis-based company that hand-makes leather products like purses, tote bags, duffel bags, keychains, and wallets. It's a fascinating business that is just a little bit more than eight years old, but it's blowing up like, forgive me, a bowl of Weaver popcorn. In his mid-20s, Christian Reshak decided to learn how to hand-stitch leather handbags. He went to thrift stores, bought out all of the leather jackets he could find, and set up a workspace in his basement in his home in Irvington. He sold his first bag on Etsy within a month. He has since built it by hand into a million-dollar business with 17 employees without the help of any investors or any bank financing. It is as pure and low-tech an entrepreneurial story as you're likely to find, with the exception that a good portion of his sales are online. And that is the reason Reshak is aiming big to become a global brand. After talking with him for the Made in Indiana feature last week, I thought it would make a great podcast. So here we are. That's how this episode of the podcast got made. We conducted the interview in Howland Hyde's flagship location in Fountain Square, which doubles as its main retail site and its main production facility, although that's going to change very soon as Reshak plans to at least double his employee base and double, maybe triple, his sales this year with some partnerships with national brands on the way. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Christian Reshak owner and creative director of Hyde, excuse me, Howell yeah. <laughs> and Hyde. Uh, thank you for making time. Thank you for having me. So for this episode uh, the podcast, we're out of the studio. We are actually at Howell Hyde's flagship location on Virginia Avenue in Fountain Square. It's about 6,000 square feet. Yep, just over. Okay, on two levels. Yep. And this space has multiple functions. What all happens here? So first and foremost, um, as of right now, we're manufacturing everything out of here, um, but it also doubles as our retail storefront. Offices are here as well, and then also like content creation. So it's it's like the nucleus of the whole brand is right here. It's the whole shebang. Right here. Right here in this location. Yep. What is really interesting to me is that just a little more than eight years ago, you had started teaching yourself how to sew leather in your basement. Hand sew. Hand sew, right. Hand sew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, someone said to me, you know, hand sewing, that hurts. It sucks. <laughs> it hurts. Like every night I would come home and like 
my pinkies, the little crevice where your you know knuckle is, would just like be there'd be cuts, like paper cuts, but with thread all the time. My hands were just torn up. I didn't have a sewing machine for the first two years. What is the advantage of hand sewing over using the sewing uh, machine? I mean, there's a bunch of different. It's uh, I didn't know how to sew. I didn't also didn't have the resources to buy sewing machines at that point. So you know, kicking it old school, two needles, one thread, and you just kind of interweave, and it's easier. I mean, really, in the law, it's not in the long run, but to start up, it was. So, and at that time in 2014, it was took a very like heritage direction, which that manufacturing style fit into that bag style at the time. So in any event, so eight-ish years later, I mean, we are in this really big, impressive facility. How does that feel to you? I mean, having made that kind of journey, I mean, like literally underground yeah. to, you know, this two-level facility here at Fountain Square. It's crazy. I mean, I have a, it's in my nature to talk a pretty big game. So I was saying this eight years ago, right? I was like hollering from the rooftops that I wanted to be in the direction that we're going right now. Now, when I hear that from an external perspective from somebody else, I have to take a step back. And I'm like, oh, dang, I am doing something pretty cool. I can't believe that this actually worked, you know? We were at the bank yesterday and and new banker and the banker was like just taking, he has the only perspective that he has is based off the money that's in our account and how we do our business financially. And it was really refreshing to hear him say like, oh, wow, you guys are doing big things. And we were just like, oh, we don't even know you. And you're just like at an analytical perspective. That's what hits home to me. Also, whenever we do like a staff outing, we have 17 employees now. So it's like so powerful for me to understand that like I'm providing all these people with a job. Um, that's been the coolest thing throughout all of it. And you did this all on your own dime. All on my own. And I, re I remember I was like, I need money. And I was like, well, how do I get money? I didn't ever, I've never done this. I've never, I, I spent six months in college. It wasn't for me. So I left. And so I didn't learn a lot of the tools needed within business. But I think that's like the beautiful thing about it. But yeah, I remember like, how to fundraise way back when. And I would beat myself up trying to fundraise when it wouldn't work. And then I just was like, I can just do it all myself. Yeah. And so you are 100% owner. 100% owner, yeah. Yeah, no investors. Nope. Okay, so good rule of thumb uh, at the, the start of the story is to start at the beginning, as they say. So the big bang moment for Howland Hyde, the way I understand it, comes as you're walking in a mall. Yeah, I was walking in a mall. Through a mall, yeah. you're shopping. I don't go to the mall. Yeah. And I was at the mall um, and... I was at a very well-known leather bag store and just kind of saw a tote bag kind of like fraying at the seams a little bit. Um, and then I saw the price tag of it and I was just had this idea like I could do that. So then the very next day was when I went to every Goodwill in the, you know, Indianapolis metropolitan area and bought all leather jackets, cut them up and bought all the wrong tools and taught myself how to sew. <laughs> how did you buy the wrong tools? I mean, because there's different things like, like what pokes your holes to hand sew it's called a pricking iron i was using like not the right one I, w I was i didn't even have a cutting mat i was like literally cutting leather on my floor my unfinished basement floor didn't even have a table and that, that to me is just a weird reaction to see to seeing something like a substandard product oh, you yeah. go i can make that yeah i mean did you have something in your background that would suggest no you know working with your hands working no. with leather no I only have a retail background, really. I mean, I've always been a little artistic. Um, like, you know, in high school, I took a lot of art classes and things like that. Never in 3D, which is crazy that now I work in 3D. 
Um, I, I don't necessarily like look at it as being an art rather than being like manufacturing and how can we grow the business? But at the same time, it's kind of fake until you make it. So it had to work. Yeah. So in October of 2014, that's when I started. Right. You started sewing. I started to teach myself. Yeah. Was, yeah. How did you teach yourself how to do it? Just, I got old Al Stolman books from the 1970s. So there was this leather working in the 1970s was huge. Everyone was doing it. It was on trend. You know, every dad had a leather working set in the 1970s. Right. And there's this old country bumpkin called uh, Al Stolman that used to do these magazines every month that were like hand drawn magazines, essentially, that just like told you how to do like Western leather work. So, um, I taught myself that way. How did you find this? Uh, Tandy leather. And then I found Landwerland leather on South in Illinois, um, which is a fourth generation leather shop. And really like, I was too nervous to go in there and ask questions. So I just like buy all the material that I could to like read about it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to go the route of like, I don't know, I guess yeah, YouTube was, it was 2014. YouTube was around obviously, but like there wasn't that much in terms of like how to's then, you know? So I found that it was easiest to just, you know, buy those books, learn that way, kind of kick it old school. Then you uh, had had a job at the time. Yeah. This wasn't just your only preoccupation. No. What were you doing? I was at Angie's List. So I actually like moved right out of high school, graduated high school in 2008, and then was at Purdue for six months. Did not like it. R- like structure and rules to me have never been something that is like, worked so when i'm you know 18 years old having to be told to do these things while i'm living alone i was just like this is not for me so then i like moved all around and worked retail um i wanted to venture back to indianapolis and so i got a job and you're from noblesville right I'm from noblesville yeah i landed a job at angie's list um which moved me back out here was there for a while i was in their member sales department and then i was in their complaint resolution department before that and so so you, you've got at least some money coming in a little bit yeah but yeah. At that time, I owned a house in Irvington and mortgages were really cheap, which is great. I only had to pay so much to like live, but everything that I made went back into the business. So when did you sell your first bag? Were you making bags? Yeah, always bags. Yeah. November, December, right away. I mean, I started a, I started an Etsy account in October or in November, started to myself in October, started an Etsy account in November and, uh, Stuff was selling on Etsy. So I was like, okay, this is something that I need to build on. Okay. So you sold your first bag in November. November. Yeah. 2014. In one month. One month. Yeah. That's a, it's probably terrible. It's probably terrible. Yeah. Do you remember? What do you remember about that bag? Probably awful. You know, like, but the thing though is with it is that like when I see those old bags floating around, people love them so much, jump makes me very hyped. But it's always a thing of like, that's a piece that I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, you're practicing on Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that gives you sort of sense of, you know, well, here's, here's how the revenue works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and online. Yeah, for sure. Totally. It's also like splitting up. Like most people don't understand that, like, there's a whole equation in terms of manufacturing, you know, like you sell it for this price, but breaks it down to like every dollar of that bag sale goes to something within the structure of the business. Yeah. So you you're plowing all the money back in. You're not taking money out to go. I've, I've used one. I used a credit. I used a credit card uh, for four hundred dollars. That was all that I had into it. I bought two pieces of leather. I didn't go on vacation for six years. <laughs> so, uh, what was the inspiration for the name Owl and Hive? I had a, a a husky who's near near dear to me. Her name's Alice. We have a bag named after her as well. 
She was 15 last year when she passed away. I've had her since she was four months old. She talked all the time. So oh, right. uh, yeah, she's howling all the time. So that's kind of where it came from. And so, and not too long after that, I mean, really a surprisingly short amount of time. Oh yeah. You decide you're going to quit your job. April. It was kind of a, <laughs> it's kind of like, Hey Christian, you're not really doing work. You're like working on Holland Hyde all day. And so they were like, it, you probably shouldn't work here. And I was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't work here. So I was like forced to like in April to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Because realistically and objectively, I wasn't providing Angie's list of things that they needed. Yeah. Oh, they called you on it? They're like, oh yeah, 100%. you're spending a lot of time on yeah, your business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I'm, I, I am very thankful now because it pushed me to, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then I was in April. And it's really funny because uh, Mikey is our brand manager. I'm sorry, brand director here. And he's like my right hand man in terms of like the business side of things. And when I left Angie's list, I was like, shoot, man, I need, I need, a, I need some income. So Mikey had, uh, he was managing a pizza spot on the east side and he hired me. So I worked for Mikey for, you know, a good year to supplement my income. I worked Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. A delivery or making pizza? Uh, I was a bartender. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Good. So, uh, but it was great. And it's funny because fast forward a couple of years, uh, Mikey was in a position where, you know, he didn't, he needed to do something else for work. And it was just natural that he would come on board here. So it was, it's cool that how it all worked out. So I was, yeah, I was going to ask you like in April, like what gave you the confidence to, to break off, but actually the, your bosses gave you a little. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was also, it, it needed to work. There's no other option. So what was the first like signature design uh, where you felt comfortable saying, you know, I can replicate this. Yeah. I can do, I can do a bunch of these and people like it and you, and you give it a name. Like what was the first bag that you, uh, I think it was the Jefferson back then I was naming, I was naming bags after different whiskeys, which was <laughs> of course on trend at the time, but it was our messenger bag. We did a 16 inch messenger bag and a 14 inch messenger bag. And there was like a, a, like a standard and a premium is how they worked. And those, this is back when they were all hand sewn. And I like worked really hard to like get those designs down, get the leather sourcing down, thread down, all of that. And then I actually, um, what year was this? This was probably in 2016. I damn near emptied my bank account on a booth space at a trade show in New York, um, which was not direct to consumer. It was B2B. So it was like a legit, Stores purchasing right. products. Selling the stores, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and that's the route that I wanted to take because I knew being in the retail you know, world, that's kind of like the direction that you see growth happening. So it's like, that's what I need to do. And I'll never forget it. I I literally like came home with like $8 in my checking account because like it's a $10,000 boost space. Like it's so expensive to go, you know? But I had a bunch of purchase orders, which was incredible, right? Like it, it did very, very well, me being there. But I got home and it was that hard realization of like, I have to produce all these bags. And I think it was like 200 hand-sewn bags that I had to make to fulfill orders, right? For like how soon? Very soon. I mean, because you have to give, most big brands, they have a they have an inventory that they sell off when they go to trade show and they just monitor their inventory levels. Whereas for me, it was all made to order. So I come home, literally $8 in my checking account, no money. I had to buy all the leather for this. I had to do all of this. So luckily a buddy loaned me some money for the leather, but it was like three months of me just like cranking away, working as hard as I can, hand sewing 200 plus bags 
and distributing them. And you were still solo. You had no employees. I had, a, I had a one, I had, a, I had an apprentice that was part-time, but that scenario was a huge learning curve, like learning thing for me because it almost put me out of business. You know, you just grow too, too fast with other resources. It's when it kind of implodes. Right. So we harnessed those relationships for as long as I could. And then obviously with COVID, the whole B2B sector kind of fell through. Um, so we pulled from a lot of stores. We weren't filling for a lot of stores. And that's really when the team grew. So when did you like have your first real employee? I mean, it was probably towards the end of 2016. So, so at this point, I'm sure you figured out how to price the bags. How do you price? So it's pretty standard. You always want the price of and this. I learned this from just Google University, yeah. right? And it made sense to me. And I, I have to be a very like, to be simple for me to understand it. So I have to break it down, right? Really what it is, is that you want your bag to be 20, 25, at the very most, 25% of what that bag sells for, right? Yeah. So the very standard formula that we utilize is your cost of goods plus labor times four. That's how we get our MSRP. Yeah. I actually did the same research yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. said, wow, this was super easy. Super easy, right? right. Because you think about it, right? right. Like, that, but that's the retail price. Yes, absolutely. Right. So yes. it's my materials, my labor yeah. times two for wholesale. Exactly. Times four for, for retail. Yeah. And, and, and that worked for you. hundred percent, right? Because when you do the wholesale, you have a minimum order that you have to reach, which was nice because we know that we're going to get that money at the very minimum from that store for this bulk order. So it made it kind of worth it. Wow. Uh, I, my understanding is when the, and people who are first starting off in this, I mean, they struggle to figure out how to price things. Totally. And for some people, that just feels like too much money. Yeah. They, they're like, oh, they go, I can't afford this. Totally. Why, why don't I make a bag that I can afford? But that is how, I mean, that's essentially how the industry works. And, Absolutely. and, and if you want to maintain this kind of business, you need to be able to do that. For sure. And I had a lower price point right out of the gate wasn't too low. I mean, it was, it was a good price point, but it was too low for where I wanted to go. But I knew that geographically where I'm located, people understand value in a different way. I've lived a, to- a ton of different places before and value is, in my opinion, is very like geographical, right? Like you, I can go sell my bags in New York and LA and they view my bags as valuable in the sense that this is going to last forever and it has a full lifetime warranty. Whereas here, and in the Amazon world, we look at price point as being what is valuable when in all actuality, we are re-educating the individuals that come into our store of what that value is, right? Like, yeah, you can go on Amazon, you can get an $80 leather bag, probably gonna have to replace it in a year, right? I'm, I'm going to stop this real quick, uh, just because I just noticed that you have tattoos on your fingers. Yeah. And one of them says hand. Handmade. And I thought the yeah. other one says made. Yeah. It's like for folks who can't see this, it's like uh, it's like the beginning of the Blues Brothers, where each each letter, each finger has a, a letter on it. Yeah, and it says "hand made." A year after working for myself, I did that. That's hilarious. Yeah. I never had any tattoos that were visible because I was always still in that like you know workforce, you know. So a year after doing this, I was like, I'm gonna get my knuckles tattooed. So handmade naturally. Okay, right. On. <laughs> so you figure out the price point and and there obviously are customers who are willing to pay that yeah. so they're set that way when did you when did you get out of the basement into your first commercial space april of 2015 was when i left my full-time job and i was working from home just in my basement my house was in irvington so then i had the opportunity with um pattern which is a not-for-profit here in town within the arts and fashion and they had this new concept and they were working with another organization to build what is now 
or formerly, I don't know if it's still around, but Ruckus, right? Which was a makerspace here in town. So what we did was I worked with the Pattern Workshop and built it with them, right? So it's myself, a company called Yonderbound, Jerry Lee Atwood, who's Union uh, Western Wear, and myself. And we were all in this like makerspace right on Mass Ave. It was great. We were there for eight months. It was kind of like a way for them to build Ruckus while having a visible example of what Ruckus would be. Which is great because he put me right on the avenue. It was awesome. The exposure was great. Like I said, it was for eight months. And then after that eight months, they were kind of going in a different direction. And I was like, shoot, I got to find a spot. You know, I knew that I needed to not work at home. It didn't work with me working at home. But in that workshop, I was there 8 a.m. until sometimes 2 a.m., six days a week. I was there nonstop because I was just like making things, making things, making things, making things, just re- refining my craft to a T. It didn't. The thing sold. I don't. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what sold, but the most important part of that journey was that I was able to like not work and be in a visible area teaching myself everything I needed to know about the leatherwork. So after that workshop, I moved to the edge of Fountain Square on State uh, in English into the building that is on the northwest side of the intersection. It was a small little eight hundred square foot spot. Again, it had, we had external access. So it was like a storefront I was there for a couple of years. At that point, I brought in my first sewing machines. It was just like teaching myself how to sew, brought on an apprentice that then changed to a, a, an employee of mine, which was nice. It's there for a couple of years and then moved out of that facility right across the street on the southwest corner of state and English, which is the building most people know of us, um, which was great. That's where I. COVID happened in that building. It was a wild time. Um, when we left that building to open up this new facility in November of 2021, we had five employees and now we're up to 17 in this location. Well, you've grown that much just here oh, in this yeah. location. Yes. Did you at any point uh, get a bank loan? No. So the story that you just told about being in the bank, that was the first time you've been well, I mean, seeking the bank loan? No, we didn't even, we weren't seeking a bank loan yesterday. We were just like, we were just setting up our, because we, Split manufacturing away from Holland Hyde because we have a new facility that we're going to manufacture some of our things. So we want to make sure that was a separate incorporated company. And how it's going to work in the future is Holland Hyde Manufacturing is going to be manufacturing the products, then wholesaling them to Holland Hyde to then sell out of our retail store. So we needed essentially just like set up a bank account. And it was funny because the banker was like, the banker was like, you guys have, you guys could totally have capital. And we're just like, wait, what? Like, even this is yesterday, you know? So we're completely still debt-free as a company. You totally debt-free. You have yeah. not taken out a bank no. loan. And for this new project, as you say, there's, there's going to be a separate manufacturing mm-hmm. facility. Yes. Kind of close to the Mass Ave area. Yes. Yeah, so it's like uh, the north side of Mass Ave, uh, kind of by uh, North Mass Boulder okay. is where we're at, right off the highway, which would be great. Are you leasing that or did you buy it? We're leasing it. And okay. uh, it's a small little spot. It's about 3,500 square feet. And it's a lily pad. And I say a lily pad because it's far too small for us. It's funny because like the more we're in there, the more the walls keep closing <laughs> in, you know, but my, the way that I've approached business, is if I don't have money for it, I'm not going to do it. Right. So we wanted to outfit that new facility with all new machinery. So in my mind, and our landlord's great, gave us a two year lease on it, which is pretty unheard of. I want to buy all the machinery for that spot, own it all outright. So then two years, I can have a, six to 10,000 square foot facility with machinery that I already own. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't want to have to jump straight to that six to 10,000 square oh, feet gotcha. and then have to finance all the machinery. And then have to, I don't, that's not how it works. Oh, so literally like a lily pad in that you would jump over there. Yep. And then two years later, you will jump to a bigger space. Yes. And we also brought in a, a director of operations. Um, his name's Kyle. He's one of my very close friends. We've been friends for the last eight years. And uh, he started with us last year and he has a really, really great insight to how manufacturing works. So what he's doing right now is he's developing an entire like manufacturing and production software. And he's, we're integrating within our production process that allows our employees to like scan materials out. It allows our pl- employees to scan in and out of their jobs. So we know exactly how long it takes each process. And what's nice is that like, this is pretty advanced, right? For something that started in my basement, it's pretty advanced to have somebody that's sole role is to integrate software into, into the manufacturing process. And uh, with this lily pad, it's great for us to trial and error that process. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Okay, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our conversation with Christian Reshak about the rise of Howell and Hyde. How many people do you have now producing bags? A bunch. Everyone knows how to do a little bit, but really the way that the company structure works is that it's myself as the creative director, Mikey's our brand director, Kyle is our operations director, Sean is my longest employee, he's our product director, then John is out in New York, he's our content director, and then Jess is our experience director and she runs our entire flagship store. So underneath those directors fall the production team. So we've got probably eight more individuals that are solely on production. And the uh, the breadth of product is obviously a lot different. It's not just like handbags yeah. and messenger bags. Now, what all do you make? So it's actually funny because when I went to New York and I drained my bank account to do those trade shows, I was a I was a male company. We only we only sold messenger bags that appealed to men. So it wasn't until like 2016 that I launched women's, and then now we are a 70 percent women's company. So it completely mm-hmm. flipped. We have 12 bag styles that we offer and we've got about five wallet styles that we offer. It's pretty limited. And the reason being for that is that like those bag styles work. I want to gather as much data as I can on the sales of those bag styles. And I want to refine those bag styles as much as we can. And um, just so folks don't get the, get the idea that it's like all brown and like dark no, brown no, no, no. and black leather. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not psychedelic necessarily, but yeah. you have a lot of color down so there. So what's exciting is, and it's going to change even more. Yeah. So, um, I'm very excited. I was in New York in last month talking to with our tannery and we've been very, very successful on the antique tan and the black that we carry that we've carried for the last four years. Um, they've been our standard colors, but we went into a, a meeting with them and I was like, Hey, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to discontinue brown and black. And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, I'm not going to discontinue it, but I need, we're talking about sustainability and sustainability has become a, a bigger, a bigger topic now. And with leather being a byproduct of, you know, the meat industry, like we're already in a sustainable way because we're utilizing everything. But I want to take it a step further, right? So our antique tan and black are a chrome tanned leather, which chrome tan leather, 
You can, it, it gives you like the rustic feel. It gives you like the marbleization and things like that. But it's a really quick tanning process. You can tan oil tan leather in a matter of two weeks. But one thing that they're doing is that they're pumping it full of hot oils and waxes, um, which can be harmful for the environment, right? So when I went in my meeting uh, in January, was I said, we're discontinuing brown and black. We're going to reintroduce a brown and black in veg tan leather, vegetable tan leather, which is a way more uh, eco-conscious and eco-friendly way to tan. It's the original way that they tanned way back when. Um, they used twigs, berries, natural elements to actually tan the leather rather than pumping it full of you know, wax and harmful chemicals. Yeah. But I also said, we've lived within the two color realm for a long time. Then we integrated pink and green. That's been doing well. But what I'm very excited about is that brown and black, the new brown and black will launch next month um, in that new vegetable tan leather, which is a, takes six months to tan. It's a very, very high end leather. But in June, we've got six more colors that are coming that are going to be standard. So not only are we going to be brown and black, but we're going to have grape, gray, Canary yellow. Um, we're having baby blue blush. I think that's it. I don't want to do like a lot of gender stereotyping here, but I'm assuming that those are directed for the women's market. We like to say that we are 100% gender neutral. Mm. We never will market a bag to one gender, which is really nice. For instance, I use the bag I use is our Shelby tote every single day. And typically people have the stigma that a tote bag is in the feminine realm when in all actuality it's not the penny bag, which is our most successful bag. Men and women buy our penny. You need to you need to hold up your fists. Yeah, right. Laughing, <laughs> laugh you said, "Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah." I did this. Yeah, I did this with my hands. Yeah. So, and that was a big <laughs> shift for us too. Of like, why like limit yourself to the individuals that you sell to, right? So yeah. we started marketing and using our content to show that our bags are pretty much for all. And I introduced <laughs> you as, as creative director. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, at the beginning, you were designing everything. I still everything is. I've designed everything except the Charlie. The Charlie Sean designed and he designed it. It's our little circle bag. It's perfect. And obviously when good design comes, I have to integrate it. So that was a great, great thing for Sean to design. So yeah, I still have, still design everything. It all gets conceptualized up here in my shop. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. So really, I mean, you had this sort of latent uh, career as a designer in you the entire time. I guess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, up until the point you realized you needed to use that talent. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a wild ride. So you started off on Etsy, mm -hmm. and then like, what are, what are the revenue streams now? You have your own website. Yeah, so we started out on Etsy, which is a great you know starting out platform. But then what I did was, and probably the reason why Angie's list was like, "Hey, you got to take a hike," was because I was big, building my whole bill, uh, big cartel website, you know, at work, <laughs> which probably was not okay. <laughs> but we utilized big cartel uh, because it was super easy, and it was just me, right? So I was like, I'm not very good with computers. So we utilized that for the first year. Then we moved over to Squarespace because I was able to like teach myself some HTML and like really build a website how I wanted it to be. Uh, utilized Squarespace for a long time. And then we actually shifted probably five, four years ago to Shopify, which our website lives on now and Shopify is great. But before we opened this flagship store, online was doubling retail. And then the minute we opened the store, retail started doubling online. So our biggest focus within our marketing and content team is to have online double retail again. Okay. Right. Cause there's a ceiling here, right? We're there's a ceiling that we can look up at within this flagship store. Whereas the world wide web is just, there's no ceiling. You can yeah. do whatever. So that's where we're like really pushing and utilizing PR and other things to really get our name out there. 
Are your bags available at any other stores? Do you still do that? Yes. Uh, select stores. We had a couple. Now COVID was crazy. So again, we had to like not take that route because every store was closed. Yeah. So this year, because we kind of have these new leathers coming, we've really standardized things. My brand director and myself will be out in New York and Vegas in June, re-entering that market, gotcha. which is exciting. Okay. So it's not something that you've abandoned. You no, still, you no, want to have do, that. Yeah, for sure. That Absolutely. source of revenue. Yes. You have retail here. Yep. You have online. How, how does that break down percentage wise for so, sales? Yeah. So really we have three, three sectors of revenue. Online and in store are straight to consumer. Right now, online and in store are about they're half and half right now, which is great. That's what we want. Um, they're pretty even, but we are working for again online to double retail. The wholesale market is a sector that we've been in that we are re-entering that we're excited about. But something that's not as visible is we do private label, which makes up about 30% of our business, wow. which is huge. So um, that's where we have partnerships with with other companies and uh, we kind of bring their promotional products to life, um, but well-built promotional products. Mm. So I know, uh, for example, like there's a, I think that's a Pistons. Just rip Pistons, yeah. There's a Pistons uh, jersey over there and it says how. So I know, I know you make stuff for the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. How did that come about? They're amazing people and I cannot believe that we got that contract. Right after we opened the store, a guy named John, who's the equipment manager for the Pistons, had seen our episode on Good Bones. Oh, yes. The, the home yeah. the HGTV show yes. based so, in Indianapolis. Yeah. And, and, the, and you were featured on that show. Yeah. We were on a couple episodes. Great people. It was a ton of fun. But we had just opened up this location, November of 2021. And John, the Detroit Pistons uh, equipment manager, was in town for, I'm guessing, a preseason game. or I can't remember what it was. He's in town, saw our show, our episode on Good Bones. He was talking to an employee here. It's like, oh, I would love for you guys to make bags for the players. And then when my employee told me that, I was like, cool, what's his email address? It's like, I didn't get it. <laughs> what? I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, are you kidding me? So like by the grace of God, no, it was like January of last year, I get an email from John and I'm oh. like, he found me, <laughs> you know? So um, we developed, it was great. It was a beautiful partnership. Cause you can go about it two ways. You can, I can prototype an entirely new product for you, which is a whole different process, or you can pick something that's in our current line. We can develop color logos, things like that. So what the Pistons wanted, they wanted our Dorman duffel, which is a standard athletic duffel, but they wanted it in Royal blue with the white Pistons logo. And we need to fulfill like 33 in like a week, which is a lot. And we did it. Um, and now all the players, when they go out of town, they carry our blue duffels with them that, you know, they get on their private plane and go to Chicago and play or go to LA and yeah. play. Since then, they uh, uh, they did a, a special Paris game this year. So we made dop kits, passport holders, and sling bags for them. Um, we've got some new stuff coming out f- with them this year, but really great, great folk up there. Are they... Are those like personalized bag? Like when oh, they yeah. have like the player's name on I it? I stamped every single player's name on it. So you've made Jaden Ivey's bag. Yeah, right here. Wow. <laughs> I, stamped, I, stamped his name, I stamped his name right here at this table. That's cool. Yeah, and it's funny because they come back in April, April 7th, and we're trying to get them to uh, come in and stamp their bags and stuff. Yeah, and then those jerseys, we were at the game. He obviously like, John set us up with, you know, seats at the game and whatnot. And, and he comes, mind you, this guy is out of town. He's not, he lives in Detroit, right? Yeah. And so since NBA trades all the time, they keep jerseys with them and they just have this like hot press. They can hot press letters and names. Mm. So I'm sitting in my chair, John, like that dude has so much to do. 
he took time and just like made our jerseys for us at Gainbridge and gives them to us. But they're so funny because when we put them on, since they're player jerseys, it goes from like my ankles because they're all the players are so tall. <laughs> like just, that's a good example of like how good these people are, you know, like just really beautiful people. And that's just kind of who we like to work with. Do you know how many bags you sold last year? A bunch. I know that we sold over a thousand pennies alone. That's one bag. Sold. Okay. That's one style. Yeah. yeah. Thousands. Right. Can you, you feel comfortable? Can you ballpark like what your revenue was last year? Uh, yeah. We breached over a million dollars last year. Okay. Wow. Which is huge. Huge. Especially for a self-funded company. So um, mind you, in 2021, we did like 500. So every year we keep doubling and doubling and doubling. Now we did more than 500,000. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you, uh, okay, so you doubled revenue. Yeah, all, every From year. Every single year we've doubled. 500,000 ish to more than a million. Yeah. Last year. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, any, any, would you expect it to double again this year? A hundred percent. I want to, I want to triple it. <laughs> it's fully managed now. Right. Mm-hmm. I've, my viewpoint on employees was always a little tough because my shoulders can only hold so much. And to think of me putting food on individuals' tables. Before I go to bed at night, that's what I think about. You know, like that's tough. Something that you have a responsibility, not to yourself, not to the brand, but you have a responsibility to these like beautiful people that work for you, you know? But this shift that I had was if we make it, we sell it. That's literally how it goes. So I'm like, yo, the more people I bring on, the more we're going to make, the more we're going to sell. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it was that weird shift for me that was in that mindset of thinking like, yo, these people aren't a bill. This Your payroll's not a bill, it's an asset. You, it is a necessity for, success. So looking into this year, we're completely fully managed, right? Like I get the creative director role now because I have five directors that run segments of the business that they push it down to the team, which is so great. So when I say on a triple revenue, like absolutely, because last year when we doubled it, we didn't have, we weren't fully managed. Mm -hmm. So of course we're taking time that could be utilized to sell, to trade. So now that we've trained, Mm-hmm. Let's sell. Right. So what kind of hiring plans do you have for this next year? So with a new manufacturing facility, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a sign, I have a I have a flag up here that says nobody knows anything. And it's like a great yeah. we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. What I do know is that um it's gonna be it's we're probably gonna double. Um I'd like to hit 30 by half of the year. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. So I'd like to And these would primarily be production people. Yep, yep, yeah. And it's, how do you how do you teach? How do you teach that? Are, are, are other people out there that have those skills that you can just go get? I would prefer not them. Yeah. I would, yeah. Because uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an art form, right? It's a, it's an art form. And if you bring somebody in that has a ton of experience, you have to, you have to break them of their bad habits. Um, where I see it as being leatherworking is a, a wild thing. It's process oriented. There's stepped for everything. Right. And we like to integrate that. And we like to teach our people from square one. It's really interesting because um, we we partnered a few years ago with um, the Hoosier Veterans Assistance Foundation in terms of like bringing to light what leather work does for veterans with PTSD because it is pro- because it is process oriented. It's one of three art mediums that directly combats PTSD because these guys that have this and ladies that have this, um, which is awful, is like you know they're they're doing their services, they're needed for different things all the time, right? And it's like very step by step, and then when they finish their duties and they come home. It's like, what do I do? You know, like I I don't have this. So a lot of folks work with leather because if you skip a step, it's not going to turn out the way that you want it to, Um, which is really, really cool. in the way that your mind works, you know, it's very, very rigid, but in teaching that 
in my opinion, it's much easier. Um, now, when you get into like design, that's where it gets tough. But really, we have stations set up downstairs to where each there's different stations for each step. And you pretty much start out at straps. You make straps. You rivet hardware on straps all day. And it's monotonous, right? And then you move on to the cutting phase where you've got a big clicker press machine that essentially like a cookie cutter. You put your leather on the cutting surface. It's a big razor blade cookie cutter of each component with the rounded edges and holes that need to be poked and put the leather up. They put the little cookie cutter there, they press two buttons and uh, emits like 10 tons of pressure and it cuts out that component, right? So that's your next step. So you're just cutting out components for bags and and, and then it goes into the prep phase to where you're like, then adding hardware, gluing, gluing things. Then it goes to be sewn in the sewing room and then it gets put in the finishing room, which it, we have our, our quality control and it gets shipped out. So we spoke a, a couple of days ago and, uh, one of the things that stood up for me was that you want to be a global brand. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you've got a place like this, which almost seems like it grew out of the walls here. I mean, yeah. it seems completely organic yeah. to Fountain Square and to this building and this place. How do you replicate that on a global scale? How do you do that in Paris and Tokyo and New York? Yes, yes. I love that. Um, a lot of people say like, wow, you think big. Yeah, 100%. There's mm-hmm. no reason, you know, if... If Maine could produce LL Bean, if you know the West Coast can produce Filson, which have been around for hundreds of years, there's no reason why we can't take that same approach to our brand, right? So the way that I want to kind of work that is obviously we have a few very big national partners this year. Fortunately, we signed NDA, so I can't talk too much about it. But okay. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay. I'm very excited to show you guys what that is, but that's going to level us up even more. Um, but really what that looks like is when we opened up this store, before we opened this store, we did a three month pop-up in Carmel and we really just like asked ourselves a bunch of questions and we wanted to utilize that space as a testing ground to see if we could do what we do now. And the approach of the three month pop-up to me is so awesome. 2025, and I know that we're talking like far out, but like my brain, I'm on three to five, right? To really like further the brand. In 2025, we want to take that same approach for three-month pop-ups, but we're thinking June, July, August, New York, October, November, December, LA. So we'll just have a three-month pop-up with a brand name to kind of like, we are here, you know? And then from there, gather the data we need to, and then go to other cities and do three-month pop-ups and whatnot. But really where it falls is marketing and our content, like, uh, side of the business is what's really going to put us on that global And then you kind of collect that data and see... Yeah. yeah. And really what's, what I'm excited about is that this is stemmed from not only just a product, right? Like, like we're doing media now, we're doing manufacturing. So how and how has an umbrella now, right? To where it's like the brand that it is. And then underneath that umbrella, we have our manufacturing, we have our media, we have our private label. So essentially we have four businesses that stem from one business that started in my basement. Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. I'll hold you to that. Yeah. And, uh, I want you to tell us about yeah <laughs> about these new partners pretty soon. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, well, best of luck to you. This is thank you so much. Is, uh, a great story, and yeah, and we'll definitely be in touch. Yeah, I uh, twice this week. It's been fun to hang with you. Yeah, <laughs> right on. Thanks for having me. My thanks again to Christian Reshack. You can check out our Made in Indiana feature on Howlin' Hyde in the February 17th issue of IBJ. But before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, 
Neighbors of the Marion County Fairgrounds are calling for an outside audit based on allegations of misused public funds for political purposes. Taylor Wooten has the story. Also in this week's issue, Sam Stahl examines the growing problem of construction site theft. And Dave Lindquist shines a spotlight on Brown County Music Center, which is building a reputation for its pristine sound and hospitable vibe for national acts. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business, and now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.